0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: To Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, we have a lot of people join us on Trillions, but in the ETF world, there's very few players as big as BlackRock. Yeah, you know, we dive into these little corners
2: of the ETF area, and there's such great stories in some of the smaller areas and issues. But sometimes you just got to talk to King Kong or Godzilla and uh, really, you know, touch base with them because they are so dominant. And uh, BlackRock is, you know, the
1: king of the hill. That's right. And the others being uh, Vanguard's also very big. State Street's really big. But Eric, what, what is it about BlackRock and, and their approach to the ETF business? So one time I wrote
2: an article that never got published, probably for the best. <laughs> I sometimes write stuff that the editor's like, you cannot put this out. Um, where I compared every ETF issuer to like a classic rock band. And I gave iShares to me, or BlackRock was the Beatles. Because you know how they covered every single genre? You know, they covered folk, rockabilly, they even had a little heavy metal, blues. The Beatles would basically listen to anything and be able to recreate that sound and and make it great. And so they had such an eclectic sound across their 10 years of existence or 12 years. To me, that's iShares. They are trying to be everything to everybody. They have ETFs that cover just about every single thing out there. They are looking to be a completely full-service, uh, full-product shop. They've got 38% market share in the U.S. ETF space, and Vanguard is 27%, although climbing fast. So they're constantly battling with Vanguard. But then you take a bigger step back, and BlackRock is the biggest asset manager in the world with $7.4
1: trillion. Now you said something in there that um, for the uninitiated can be a little confusing. There's BlackRock and there's iShares. What what's the difference between those two brands? Right. So BlackRock
2: has a lot going on. Um, I forget the percentages, but iShares is um, you know below fifty percent of their um, revenue and assets, but it's I believe one of the fastest growing areas. Vanguard is the same way. Um, ETFs, if, if you're a, a successful ETF issuer, guaranteed that's one of the fastest growing areas for assets. But BlackRock is a much bigger company. They serve. They have institutional uh, management, things like separate accounts that y- you don't even hear of. They have mutual funds. Um, they even are starting to build up tech solutions. They're a very creative, dynamic company. And what I always say about them is that they're the one company I feel that is able to go toe-to-toe to Vanguard. And Vanguard, with that mutual ownership structure, is very difficult to compete with. Um, That structure makes them lethal. But BlackRock, to me, has made a commitment to get into playing shape uh, for what I call the Vanguardian future. And they've done a great job. And they're able to really hold their own against Vanguard.
1: And of course, BlackRock acquired iShares from Barclay more than a decade ago now. And that was sort of the firm's entry into the ETF space. I always thought that when BlackRock bought
2: the iShares brand from Barclays back then, it was like the Louisiana purchase of asset management. Uh, I'm still stunned that Barclays would sell it uh, like that. But then again, Barclays, I believe, bought it back in the day for a ridiculously low amount from, I think, Morgan Stanley, which I believe they were called Webs before that. And this is the early 90s, the really frontier era of ETF. So iShares has a long history going all the way back. But what made the BlackRock purchase of iShares so good, in my opinion, is they bought a lot of the most liquid ETFs in every category. So BlackRock has a ton of the most liquid ETFs in certain categories, and that gives them huge advantage, a little pricing power, and again, it makes them a formidable competitor to Vanguard or anybody else.
1: Joining us from BlackRock, Armando Senra. He's the managing director of BlackRock as well as Annie Massa, who's a asset management reporter with Bloomberg News. This time on Trillions, a bunch of really important questions for BlackRock. Armando, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Great to be
2: here. You guys are the biggest ETF issuer. And I want to I want to start this going back to the month of March, pre-Fed, right, when there's no bids on some treasuries. The market is completely in haywire mode. Um, ETFs traded 5.5 trillion in March. That's normally what they trade in a quarter, right? So they were really put through the ringer. You had some bond price, bond ETF prices deviating from their NAV. I could imagine that your your phone was ringing off the hook. Talk to us about what it was like in March for you. As the issuer uh, of the ETFs, a lot of which were the most traded at the time.
3: Yeah, thank you, Eric. That's a, that's a great question. It seems like March uh, was uh, a million years ago, but uh, it's it's not that long ago, right? Uh, I've been in the industry for 26 years, and I thought that I had seen a lot of different uh, market events, uh, but I've never seen anything like uh, what we went through in March. And you know, beyond just what was happening in financial markets. Just the um, the human tragedy of everything that was happening around the world, and and obviously the impact that was having on our employees, our clients, uh, and so many people uh, in the globe. Um, You know, definitely that was uh, from a markets perspective. There was a a tremendous amount of activity, and um, that included you know just the the volumes, like the way you describe them, were off the charts. And if you just look at the equity trading volumes were as high as 41%, I mean, then then they ended up normalizing back to the 20s. But that there was a tremendous amount of outreach to clients. There was a tremendous amount of effort in within the portfolio engineering, which is how we call our portfolio managers for, um, for um, our ETFs, really making sure that everything worked and that we were able to deliver to clients. The quality that they come to expect from iShares. Uh, and also, you know, you, you started, you were talking about the discounts to NAV, a tremendous amount of outreach to clients, uh, both institutional clients, wealth clients, uh, really working with them in helping them understand exactly what it is that was happening, what they were seeing in the screens. And I think that you, you referred to an event that, that for us it was actually proof. Uh, it was kind of like uh, the ultimate proof point of, uh, in this case, I think that you're probably referring to fixed income ETFs, of the fact that fixed income ETFs were passing the test, they were working, uh, and they were providing to investors the utility um, that that we always talk about. They were providing liquidity, they were provided, providing transparency in pricing. Uh, so all that was happening. Now the experience depending on what you were sitting, you were all of a sudden seeing a big discount to NAV. That was ultimately the result of the ETF providing a glimpse to the actual pricing of the underlying securities, because the, the, the ETF was trading a lot more than the underlying bonds.
4: Mondo, one thing that really helped calm the nerves of fixed income ETF markets in that very turbulent period was knowing that the Fed was stepping in to backstop credit markets. And I wonder, what do you think, if you rewound the clock and the Fed hadn't stepped in maybe as fast or with as much force as it did, what do you think might have happened with authorized participants, with market participants? How do you think things might have gone if the Fed hadn't acted as quickly as it did?
3: Sure, Ani. Um, uh, I think that what is most important to me is when you think about the events uh, in March uh, and when you think about what was happening with, uh, with credit markets, uh, ultimately ETFs were delivering the performance, they were delivering the liquidity, and I think that that was validating the instrument uh, as a great way to gain exposure to the bond market. And I think that uh, whether it's the Fed, whether it's central banks in other places around the world, uh, whether it's institutional investors, whether it's wealth investors, I think that you know the performance that ETFs, the fixed income ETFs were delivering is what gives the ultimate validity to the instrument. So I think that we can speculate what would have happened if the Fed that, I don't know. Uh, what I can tell you is that it was not, I think that ETFs were performing before the Fed stepped in. Uh, and I think ultimately, yes, the Fed stepped in and obviously that added validity to the instrument. But the, the ultimately, investors, both institutional investors and wealth investors, they were getting the benefit that we have been talking about for many years around fixed income ETFs.
2: The mutual fund world, is was I felt, wasn't covered as much, but active fixed income mutual funds had seen $90 billion in outflows two straight weeks. Everybody thinks ETFs would will freeze up in this kind of situation. But we speculated that if these fixed income mutual funds, which are much bigger, had to sell bonds into an illiquid market and then had more outflows, it would create a downward spiral where you might actually have mutual funds freezing up, halting redemptions. And it could have just gotten really nasty for a while before it got better.
3: We can spend a lot of time speculating many things that could have happened or how they could have been. I think ultimately, I think, look, March uh, was a moment of like stress that we have never seen. Before March, whenever I was in similar forums like this one, uh, I was talking about what happened in December of uh, 2019, or we were talking about what was happening in different crises in the last 10 years. Uh, and throughout all of those, ultimately, these instruments work. And if you're an investor and you were looking for liquidity, and all of a sudden, you look at instruments like LQD was trading, uh, was exchanging hands ninety thousand times uh, on March twelfth. The five top holdings inside LQD traded hands thirty-seven times. You look at HYG that was one hundred and sixty-eight thousand times each day uh, during the months of March. So again, you know, like you look at the the utility that the ETF provided to the investor, and ultimately provided that liquidity when they were looking for liquidity now. The discount to NAV. look, if you needed the liquidity, you could have it. It was giving you the pricing that you could get at that point. So it was providing pricing and it was providing liquidity. And I think, look, that's why we've seen the tremendous flows. And now, Eric, you follow it closely. We've seen the tremendous inflows into fixed income ETFs globally. Right. So I'm not going to speculate what would have happened if this uh, ultimately I leave it up to you to write that.
1: Um, <laughs> okay. Fair. Um, so one difference about sort of this crisis and and moment of stress has been, um, BlackRock has actually become very close with the fed in terms of, of facilitating, um, some of the, the, the nuances of what's happening in the ETF marketplace. You know, Annie wrote about that for, uh, for us at, at business week, and we actually created a piece of art that looks like a government seal, except that it says Department of BlackRock on it. And I'm, I'm curious, Armando,
3: like, what do you guys think of that? Look, I think that you know, uh, as much uh, about the Fed program as I do. Uh, I think that uh, you, you know very well that uh, our financial markets advisory group uh, in within BlackRock is a completely independent group, uh, separated, they have their own traders, their own portfolio managers, is completely independent from um, from the rest of BlackRock. So I mean, like, I know as much about it as you do. I think that ultimately when you look at the flows, I think that sometimes that gets lost. Uh, They have been, uh, obviously, you know, there's a a Fed purchase program. Uh, Some of the ETFs that they have bought have been BlackRock, Um, but ultimately that's just a small piece compared to the overall flow that we have seen coming in into fixed income ETFs.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I look at the Fed's ETF portfolio and to me, it looks like an ETF strategist's portfolio, not what you typically see from a large institution. So there's a ETF know-how because you've got like 12, 13 ETFs in here, including stuff like USHY, ANGL, stuff that's deeper in the toolbox that we we like, but like a Yale University would never go that deep. Uh, so it's interesting to see the Fed uh, do this. And they, they didn't really create any um, disruptions in trading. So- I thought it was pretty much scalpel-level precision in how they did this. Uh, I'll pass it over to Annie to talk uh, for flows.
4: Yeah, on flows, Armando, so I think that um, iShares ETFs took in about $51 billion um, in net flows last quarter. What was driving that? Like underneath that broader figure, what kinds of products were driving
3: those? Yeah, I mean, look, it's um – the last couple of months, it's been great to see the flows back. I mean, now year to date, we are close to sixty billion. Um, just the last month, uh, it's been close to twenty billion in flows uh, if if you see the beginning of the year, obviously there there was a Well, the beginning of the year started as what could have been a record year of flows. And then obviously, you know, market events uh, derailed that, especially, you know, like market driven instruments, right? The type of instruments that when investors are trying to take risk off the table, they use. And, you know, we have the breadth of our product uh, really provides that utility to investors. I think that um, you've seen tremendous growth in fixed income ETFs. That is, we already talk a lot about it, but that, that has been one of the, uh, uh, the key areas of flows. Uh, you've seen tremendous growth also in sustainable just in the, in the first quarter, uh, more than the whole year of last year. Uh, and we are in record flows. Our factors franchise uh, was pretty stable uh, given the, the outflows that we saw overall in factors. Uh, so I would say when, when you think of the strategic segments that, uh, that or what we call the strategic segments of BlackRock, Uh, A lot of strength beginning with fixed income ETFs. Since then, it's it's beginning to change, right? You're beginning to see more equity flows. You're beginning to see uh, what could be the beginning of flows back into international markets, primarily developed markets. Like you're beginning to see investors putting money back on uh, international, um, you know, specific countries uh, at times. Like you're beginning to see how. Investors are more, some of the flows are more specific as to the country that they are going in, as opposed to broad uh, um, international exposure. Uh, like we had significant flows into Germany. Uh, our BlackRock Investment Institute uh, started turning positive to uh, to Europe on the back of a better response from COVID and the beginning of a restarting of the economy. Uh, so you're beginning to see those flows coming in in the last few weeks as well.
1: So Armando, um, I want to ask a little bit about competition. Um, you know, iShares, such a storied brand in the ETF space, but not the only one. Um, and, you know, Vanguard in particular has become, between iShares and, and Vanguard, that's something like, Eric says, 72% of ETF flows in the past three years. You guys have really just become these, these behemoths, really, in the space. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, who's King Kong and who's Godzilla? <laughs> That's up to
3: you to decide. Uh, they're 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 both big. So what's the difference? Look, I mean, I think that our we have a very differentiated business model. I mean, I think that I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. You know, iShares uh, is not one thing. Ultimately, uh, you know, when you look at how we think of product segments, we have breadth of product, different uses for different investors. Uh, we have a very strong institutional. Um, Client base, uh, and that's a big difference. And you know, you clearly see that volatility when you have moments uh, where um, it's a risk on or risk off. But again, you know, like I think that is our differentiated business model to provide. A breadth of product across different investors uh, and different uses. Uh, that's that's what we do, and you can ask Vanguard about what they do. Uh, but that's at the core of what we're intending to do: is really facilitate better portfolio construction through our uh, through our offering.
2: I call the ETF industry the terradome. It is not for the faint of heart. And you know, this year Vanguard has a little bit of a lead in flows, although they've been doing some shifting from their mutual fund to their ETF. So. I'd say maybe 30000000000 billion-ish might be that maneuver. The rest, natural. But anyway, you guys are always neck and neck, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You cut the fee in IVV, which is your S&P 500 ETF, I think a month ago, to three basis points to Vu, I guess just talk a little bit about what's behind that. And just more generally, the idea of competing against the Vanguard or competing against you guys and getting into this playing shape where you have to sort of cannibalize yourself to survive and how useful that might be in 10 years when you know post a bear market where a lot of uh, consolidation, do you look at it that way? Do you look at it as like getting yourself into the best possible shape for a rougher future for asset management?
3: When you think about our pricing, we've been really consistent. Uh, We have been very vocal around, we're gonna invest in pricing, somewhere around one and a half to two and a half percent of revenue, but we, we invest for growth. So when we invest in pricing, Is for the potential of growth that more than will overcome the loss of revenue of the cat. So when you look at what we did in IVV a few years ago, we tripled the size of the fund since then. Uh, When you look at what we are doing in IVV now, again we are doing it because we want um, the IVV S and P 500 exposure to be the largest one in the world. So we do it for growth. Um, So I think that every uh, you know ultimately when you look at the industry, it's extremely competitive. Uh, all ETFs, when you look at the alternatives in the active world, ETFs are extremely competitive. Uh, so, again, you know, I think that you've got to be thinking about our pricing right now. Uh, whenever we cut, is because we want to grow. Over the last few years, we have returned back to investors somewhere around $600 million in, um, in fee cuts, in voluntary fee cuts that we have introduced. And every single one of those moves was intended to grow our asset base and our revenue base.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all in one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ.
4: Rondo, one thing that um, has been highlighted in the past couple of quarters are are flows into ESG ETFs, and in particular in the sustainable suite of products at BlackRock, and it's something Larry Fink mentioned in his letter at the top of the year about wanting to double the number of iShares, ESG ETFs. So what do you think is behind those flows? Is there anything more than meets the eye with just customer preferences shifting, and then, as you think about what to develop and what hasn't already been picked over as far as new products in the sustainable space, you know, where is your head at?
3: Sustainable and ESG, we're extremely excited about uh, at the firm and also in within iShares. Um, you mentioned flows. Uh, I think that this year alone, asset flows um, were around $11 billion. Uh, if you look at the whole year of 2019, we're around 5 billion for the full year. Uh, and we already thought that last year was an inflection point. Another point that, that I think is interesting is when you look at this year, Europe was ahead in flows into uh, sustainable investing overall, uh, not just ETFs. Uh, this year, actually, in, in within iShares, we're seeing more flows coming into ESG from US investors. Why is that happening? I think that um, the change in the narrative and being more clear around investing in sustainable, investing in ESG is not about values. Uh, It's about value. It's about the recognition that, ultimately, ESG-related risks in a portfolio will have a significant impact in asset pricing and capital allocations. I think that it's also interesting, uh, some of the things that we've seen this year, there was a lot of emphasis on on the E on climate. I think that this year that has also expanded to more focus from investors, both institutional and wealth investors, on the S and the G, society and uh, and governance, uh, and especially on the back of uh, some of the events that you've seen this year, how companies treat their employees, the composition of their uh, of their boards, uh, the uh, diversity in the firm. I think that there's these are factors that. Uh, more and more investors are so focus on.
2: Okay, Armando, I am the ESG skeptic. The three things I would push back on ESG in general are with the flows. I think the media characterizes it as like millennials have ESG fever, but half of the flows are model portfolios, which they still count. But it's one hand moving the money there, and the institutional seating again still counts. Everything counts in the Terra Dome, but half is grassroots organic, and that's not a ton given the hype. Second point, ESG largely is a bet on tech and against energy. So it's almost like the mouth of an alligator. If energy has a supply shock, ESG could be hurt and will people be disappointed by that? And then the third issue is ESGU, which is the biggest one, that's your I think it's like 7 billion at this point. Um you know, it owns Facebook and Exxon. It's sort of like diet ESG, which is makes sense because you might not want to have too much tracking or at least advisors are tend to not go for that. But then Do people
3: who want ESG really
2: want to own Facebook and Exxon? Uh,
3: Let me just begin uh, at the beginning. So model portfolios, yes. I mean, I think that, and it goes back to what I said earlier. I think that it's about how do you think of ESG risks if you're building a portfolio? And this is why you see uh, ESG now being part of model portfolios. And this is not only whether it's our BlackRock model portfolios, these are third-party model portfolios. You see a lot more activity. And this is why we are also accelerating the development of new products. And like I think Annie mentioned, uh, we committed it to triple our uh, product base in ESG because we need to create more building blocks. So portfolio uh, model portfolio builders can have the building tools to increase uh, their sustainable allocations in their portfolio. So yes, you see that, and that's a good thing by the way. The second one in terms of the uh, the, the client base, I've never been a believer in thinking that it's just millennials. I think that there is a, a higher awareness of ESG and the importance to society. But again, this is not about values. I think that there's a play there. I think that there are some people that are going to want to invest according to their values, and we want to provide that choice. But again, I would fall back to uh, what I would say is a less polarizing uh, conversation, which is this is about returns. This is about uh, ESG-related risks. This is about how climate change will have an impact on the performance of companies that may be issuing mortgages in areas that may be flooded. Uh, Or if you're a company that is highly reliant on water supplies, a better use, a more efficient use of your water, of how you use water, um, you you will be a more efficient, a more profitable company that will do better. Uh, companies that are able to attract and retain the best talent because of their practices will do better. So again, this—you know—if you go back to the narrative around not values but really investment risk and investment returns, I think that that yes, millennials have been coming in, but you've also seen institutional investors. Some of the largest investors that we've had in the last year uh, have been pension plans. You are beginning to see asset owners across the globe beginning to change their benchmark. Uh, to increase allocations to ESG. Um, then the, the final one is is one that we have to do a better job, Eric. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that um, and we are trying and we're putting a lot of energy in education uh, to really help investors understand, you know, how do you build a portfolio with sustainable? How do you invest in sustainable? And the range of sustainable offering that we have, how does it work? So we have a range of products that we're launching called Advance. That's kind of like the most pure, form of ESG investing, where you're going to have extensive screens, you're going to have um, eliminate the entire value chain of certain uh, industries and certain types of investments. Then you have another uh, range of products that we have called Aware, where you're being aware of sustainable metrics, uh, but you're still investing uh, close to the benchmark, so less tracking error. So the offering that you refer to is an offering that you're tiptoeing into sustainable, but you want to still have uh, the same ret- similar returns to uh, the benchmark.
1: So Armando, um, for all your efforts and and the, you know, the the good intentions behind where you're trying to go with this, you know, a crisis hits and everybody turns into uh, Robin Hood day traders, it seems. And, I'm, you know, we, we actually pulled some of the numbers and we were kind of shocked Um but according to the, the numbers that we saw, iShares is not in the top 20 of, of ETFs that are being traded on Robinhood. And was curious, if there was one product you could get into that top 20, what would it be?
3: The last thing that uh, I think that we would want is to promote day trading. Uh, I think that if you look at the DNA of BlackRock, our company, I mean, how many letters have you seen from Larry about long-term business? Uh, and the importance of staying invested, the importance of portfolio construction. I mean, I think that talking about day trading would be going back going back to Jurassic Park. I mean, it's like everything that we're talking to investors about is long-termism, stay invested. I mean, like even the offering, when we build our offering, like if you think about our, our thematics offering, the mega trends offering, one of the things that we're thinking around that is how do we keep people invested? So through those themes, Uh, One of the main benefits is that hopefully through the lens of understanding the theme and having kind of like a connection, if you like self-driving cars, uh, if you like autonomous vehicles and and, uh, electric vehicles, this is one theme that you can invest in and you can stay invested. Because we believe by staying invested, people will have better returns. The rest is just gambling. So we're not going to get into that.
2: And let me um, talk a little bit about the the bigger picture here, which is we had um, Martin Small, who it's your predecessor, mm-hmm. right? And we asked him, what's the breakdown of ETF users by assets? So in other words, institution advisor and do-it-yourself retail. And I believe, don't quote me, it was in the ballpark of you know, advisors are the bulk, institutions a small slice, and then do-it-yourself retail, I think he said it was like 10%. Robinhood, we've seen a couple products kind of just skip the advisor and just be hits on Robinhood. Um, do you see that channel growing where more and more people just do it themselves? Do you see that 10% eating into one of the other two areas?
3: Uh, those, those percentages that uh, Martin talked to you about haven't really changed that much uh, because you know ultimately, yes, direct has been increasing, but we've seen tremendous growth in the institutional space, like uh, even this year, for instance, Uh, From a flow perspective, we've seen great growth because now we have more asset managers and asset owners utilizing fixed income ETFs to replace their individual holdings or bonds. I think we have a very strong commitment to advisors. Uh, It has worked incredibly well for us. I think direct will continue to increase, but overall, the percentages haven't really changed.
4: At the beginning of this year, I went to an ETF conference and everyone was like, oh, you know, it's January. They were like, oh, this is the year of like the active non-transparent ETFs. And like, it turns out that 2020 was a year of a lot of different stuff, but nevertheless, you guys are pursuing um, active non transparency of your own. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about um, where you see those kinds of products going, what, you know, you're in a quiet period for the ones that you filed for, but how big of an opportunity do you see it actually being? And like, has this space already been picked over by smart beta already? this meld of ETFs and active management?
3: No, I mean, look, we're super excited about our factors offering, uh, and that has been a tremendous franchise of growth for us. Separate from from that, uh, in the active space, I mean, I think that we have been really clear around, um, you know, wherever we see an opportunity to bring to clients uh, performance uh, through an investment strategy that will benefit from the ETF structure, we will bring it to market. And that's, that's you've seen an acceleration of our offering um, in the active space, uh, primarily transparent. Uh, and if you look at our uh, filing, has been trans- it has been mostly transparent and most of the growth has been through transparency. Now, are there strategies that at times would benefit from some sort of non-transparent or semi-transparent structure uh, because you're trying to uh, protect the holdings that you or the investments that the portfolio manager are making, yeah, there's going to be times that that happens, and then we have the option to do that type of uh, portfolio as well. I think ultimately we don't think in terms of transparency and non-transparency. We think of what can we bring to investors that is new, that brings innovation, that brings brings performance. What's the best wrapper to bring it in? That's the secondary decision.
2: I have a bet with my esteemed colleague, Todd Rosenbluth, the infamous, Um, we are betting whether active non-transparent ETS will have 10 billion by April 1st next year. I am the under, he's the over. And a big reason I'm the under is smart beta. I think if smart beta didn't exist, active non-transparents would have a lot of real estate to try to capture. But the fact is you can get active strategies served up rules-based in smart beta For example, your USMV or MTUM does momentum and minimum of all uh, or even multi-factor, which combines them all for, you know, under 20 basis points. How does an active human, especially in the large cap space, dislodge something so
3: cheap, um,
2: which advisors love right now? And do you think I will win my bet with Todd?
3: Um, So I think that this will... uh make Todd not so happy, but I, I think I will put my, my, my money with you. <laughs> um, I, look, Good man. <laughs> I, all right. You're smart. <laughs> I, I think that um, I, I may change my answer if I'm talking to him, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now Diplomatic. Um, I, I think that look, uh, there's an opportunity uh, in the active offering. I, I agree with you in terms of the potential for factors and our factor offering has proven that. And I think that the transparency that they bring, the rules-based approach—I mean, a lot of that—is a tremendous benefit and has proven in the performance, right? And I think that we're still in the early days of the growth of factors. Um, there's there's a space for certain strategies, and that's what we are doing. There's certain strategies that are incredibly attractive, and obviously I cannot talk about them uh, right now because of the quiet period. Um, but you know, there's some active strategies that it'll be great to have them on an ETF form. I just think that the growth is going to be different.
4: Eric, how much did you wager on that bet, by the way?
2: Um, it's a steak dinner, but I can go crazy with the side dishes. I'm going to get some cream spinach, <laughs> um, definitely a couple drinks. Uh, I, I'm going to lap it up because it's a year long bet. So might as well indulge. I'm one for one with my bets with Todd. So I
1: hope um, you can I think inside
4: I, at a steakhouse I, by then.
1: <laughs> Other, otherwise, <laughs> it'll be a Zoom dinner. Hopefully.
4: Yeah, I just got to be a Zoom stage in it.
2: God, I hope we, it's, we can do it in real life. I hope so own? too, Eric. <laughs>
4: um, I have a question about iShares versus BlackRock branding. You guys have started to use the BlackRock name on certain ETFs. Um, why is that?
3: We just want to make it easier for clients to understand what it is that they're buying. Uh, and I think that when it comes to Active, we are going to name them BlackRock. Uh, just to make it easier to understand that if you're buying a BlackRock ETF, that means it's an active ETF, and if you're buying an iShares ETF, you're buying an index-based ETF. So it's just it's just you know trying to make it easier for clients to understand exactly what they have and what it means.
2: Let's shift gears a little bit here, and you know we talked about your um, your massive flow intake earlier. There's a steady stream of worries on how. You and Vanguard in particular and Passive, which is ultimately you guys, are continuing to become bigger and bigger owners of America's corporations. There's two concerns. One is proxy voting. Will you vote politically, like with ESG all the time? Or you know, you gotta remember you have customers in every state. So how do you vote and balance all those needs? And number two is do you think that if passive becomes a bigger, bigger owner, corporations will somehow be less motivated? to actually engage in capitalism and we become like somehow
3: it's more like lazy. (laughs) Um, I mean, look, the the U.S. economy uh, is is large, diverse, and vibrant. And uh, I mean, ultimately, when you look at what we are trying to do, what we are about is we have a fiduciary responsibility uh, to our clients. It's not our money. It's our clients' money. And what we are trying to achieve is uh, the best to meet the objectives of the clients, depending on the portfolio that, that we manage on behalf of that. And, you know, when, when you look at that uh, discussion, I mean, sometimes we forget that we have a tremendous, we have billions of dollars in active management, uh, and they are individually selecting securities. So, Index is one part of our um, um, of BlackRock, and then we have our active book and ultimately both decisions uh, have to be driven by the fiduciary responsibility that we have to deliver the first the best performance to clients so again you know like uh, we you know there's been uh, a lot of discussion around that we don't believe that, that that's an issue we don't believe that the size of index even when you look now uh, the size of equity investments as a percentage of the equity market, the size of uh, fixed income investments as a percentage of the bond market. Um, thats We don't believe that that's an issue that we should be concerned about.
2: The other thing that I hear a lot, and i just like to get your take on this, the indies, right? These are small independent issuers. They gripe about you guys a lot. You know, you get into themes and like maybe uh, the more hardcore area of the factor space. Uh, what do you say to them thinking like, hey, come on, can't you just like let us own this area? Why does BlackRock have to go into everything?
4: And also, I think that one thing that they, one complaint they often have is like if they have a good idea, BlackRock can easily just take
3: it. I think there's plenty of. I I believe that the more ETF issuers, uh, the better it is for the overall industry, the better it is for the market, the better it is for clients. And I think that you know the only thing. My my, my only comment here that I would bring is that. What we need to see is real innovation coming from different issuers. You know, I think that if you're just trying to replicate, uh, you know, and you've seen that uh, over and over again. You know, someone comes with a new version of the S and P 500, a, a cap-weighted generic index at a lower price. I, I just don't think that that game will work. Uh, I think that if you bring real innovation uh, that delivers value to clients, I think that you have uh, then the opportunity to grow and be successful. Uh, but overall, I think that the more competition that we have, the better we get. We're not going to stop. So uh, we're very competitive. We want to stay competitive. We want to uh, continue to innovate. Uh, and you see that in some of the offering that um, that we're uh, creating in the last few years. But I think that there's an opportunity for real innovation to come in. But if you just introduce something uh, at a lower price, I think that the idea that just cost is what is going to drive success. Uh, I think that that's wrong. That will fail.
1: Okay. It seems like everybody at Blackrock is musically inclined. Martin Smalls has a gigantic guitar collection. I'm curious, you know, what, what kind of uh, what kind of instruments you, you play?
3: Well, I tell you what, uh, maybe we can talk better about things that I would like to play. Uh, okay. I, I, w- I would love to play, <laughs> to play the electric guitar like Martin. I, that would be, I would love that. I'm a huge rock fan, would love that. I have absolutely no musical talent whatsoever. Uh, but I would love to play the electric guitar. Uh, you could do the cowbell
2: in the, in the black rock band <laughs> you
3: know, or the triangle. I, I, I could do that, you know,
2: because yeah. <laughs> we do have a Andrew black Ang band. is the synthesizer guy. My colleague over there, Kate Bernhardt is an excellent singer. Yeah. I was wondering if, do they ask you to name three guitar chords in the interview? And when you file for a job at black I rock, you,
3: I, I saw them play, they play, uh, uh for BlackRock uh, last year, that was the first time that I saw them live, and I was humbled by the amount of talent on stage because I couldn't—I I really couldn't play anything. So they, they were incredible. They did an amazing job, and they actually played some of the songs that I really liked. So it was great.
1: Armando, thanks so much again for joining us on Trillions.
3: No, thanks for having me here. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal. Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Annie at Antonia B. Massa. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bye.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
3: The countdown has begun. From May
4: 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.